This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Today, our podcast is uh, concerning non-valvular AFib and stroke prevention, particularly in patients with contraindication to oral anticoagulation. And with us today, we have a very special guest. He's an electrophysiologist, and he's working with a cardiovascular consultant in Skull State. His name is Joav Kartheimer. Joav, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for being here today. Well, it's absolutely a pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on board. <laughs> Thanks. So in patients with AFib, we know that the left atrium is a common source of thromboembolic events, with over 90% of all thrombi identified can be localized in the left atrial appendage. We know that the gold standard for stroke prevention in patients with non-valvular AFib and high risk of stroke is oral anticoagulation with either warfarin or DOAX, medication like Xeralto or Eliquis. However, anticoagulation therapy is associated with significant bleeding risk. So what do you do when you have someone that has a contraindication to anticoagulation? This is probably concerning about 10% of our patient, you know, all the AFib population with patient with contraindication to oral anticoagulation. And maybe we can add another 20% who have relative contraindication to anticoagulation. So, you have what do we consider a, contra- a contraindication to anticoagulation? Who are these patients? Well, you know, as you pointed out rightly, there's a distinction between the uh, permanent contraindication, the relative contraindication to oral anticoagulation. But the ones that we really deem as an absolute contraindication would be those patients with a prior intracranial hemorrhage, severe gastrointestinal bleeding that has not yet, uh, a source has not yet been found. Um, and those patients that have significant falls risks that have fallen on multiple occasions and have had uh, significant trauma. Those would be the ones that I'd consider absolute contraindications. Um, but, you know, the, as you rightly pointed out, the 20% that have relative contraindications, it can be very challenging to talk them into even six weeks of anticoagulation post-implantation of a Watchman device or other types of atrial appendage occlusion. So, uh, I think we lump all of them in really in, in real life. We lump those 30% in as one single cohort. Very good. We know that percutaneous left atrial appendage occlusion device have been developed aiming primarily at stroke pre- uh, prevention in, in that category, patients that have contraindication to oral anticoagulation. So, you know, see if you could maybe just kind of walk us through the several devices available. And it seems like everything started in the OR. So you're absolutely right. Uh, This all started with um, a knowledge. We've had the knowledge for many years that the left atrial appendage is is really one of the prime sites for left atrial appendage thrombus. Um, And we see that these patients have about a 95% risk of left atrial appendage thrombus uh, in atrial fibrillation, only about a three to 5% risk of thrombus in any other cardiac location. And so initially during, uh, you know, the Cox maze procedures all the way back in the 70s and all the way through left atrial appendage exclusion by surgical excision or or stapling was the uh, preeminent way to go. 
though that led uh, that led to a lot of questions as to what meant a occluded left atrial appendage post-surgically. I'm sure, uh, Dr. Bouchard, you've seen many TEEs on post-surgical patients where there was incomplete closure, the suture had opened or had not been uh, fully closed over the appendage. Over the years, uh, that has developed into an understanding that more intracardiac devices or more robust ways of surgically ligating that appendage uh, are needed, and multiple devices have come out since then to provide that uh, provide that service. You know, we have the so today a lot of our surgeons are are using uh, this atrial clip or atrial clip um, when it's combined with bypass surgery or even valve surgery. Um, obviously, a lot of these procedures are performed in the OR under. TE guidance in the OR, and we have, um, you know, a lot of kind of data from the, the surgical data, the STS data, you know, showing that, you know, overall it does reduce the risk of a thromboembolic event, maybe in the order of maybe one and a half percent, which kind of, you know, it's always, uh, that, that's very good. It's not obviously perfect, but there's always concern about incomplete occlusion. And in patients that are high risk, we're so reluctant, you know, to discontinue or not use anticoagulation unless they truly have a contraindication. What's your experience clinically in these patients that have an atriclipin? So I think as the atriclip device has become more widely used and people with VATS experience are more widely utilizing just uh, video cystic thoroscopy uh, to close these appendages. We've seen better and more complete closure results in the surgical world. Um, unfortunately, uh, it's a small population and the company is a very small company and does not yet have the means to afford a clinical trial to give us really a randomized uh, set of data to, to make it evident that taking patients off of anticoagulation would be safe after these devices. Um, that being said, we have a lot of real world data that suggests if you perform a post-operative TEE on these patients and they have a stump of less than one centimeter uh, after atriclip closure, that they can safely be removed from anticoagulation. But that is, again, not something that has data to support those uh, real-world decisions. That being said, again, I think it's a very valuable technology, not only from an occlusion standpoint, but also from an electrical isolation standpoint of the appendage, which does increase significantly your chance of remaining out of atrial fibrillation. Well, that's a very good point. And this kind of moves us maybe into the, the lariat um, atrial occlusion device, which is done you know, um, at certain centers around the country. Another way to isolate uh, the atrial appendage in a way sometimes to even uh, get rid of the atrial fibrillation as well as protecting against, um, uh, you know, thromboembolic event. What is the experience with the Lariat procedure? Can you describe it maybe a little bit for our patients? Of course, the Lariat is a uh, less invasive technique to both uh, surgically ligate and to electrically isolate the left atrial appendage. It's basically just a slip knot. It's performed using an epicardial approach under the rib cage. The implanter will then thread a catheter uh, from the uh, rib cage area to the pericardium and into the pericardial space. That is the lining between the sac that holds the heart in and the heart itself. 
And then using transesophageal echo or TEE guidance, uh, that, that slip knot is then advanced over the left atrial appendage on the epicardial surface and closed down as you uh, make sure that the appendage is ligated. Um, that is in its last stages right now of enrollment in the AMAZE trial. And that is specifically looking at not only uh, stroke reduction, but is also looking at uh, AFib reduction in patients with non-valvular AFib. Very good. So these are procedures that are mostly um, occluding the atrial appendage or isolating it, it seems like from the outside. And uh, a lot of techniques obviously are, are being developed and tested uh, over the last several years uh, that are using endocardial or, or endovascular approach. That means going from the inside. And one of those is, is so-called the implatser or, or the amulet. Um, a lot of experience here as well as in Europe. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the, some of the results that we have with the amulet device, uh, particularly in patients who cannot take anticoagulation. What's the experience on um, so yeah, as you rightly pointed out, um, the two devices we pro previously spoke about are uh, epicardial approaches. They're a bit more invasive. They do carry with it a little bit higher risk of complication. And so endovascular approaches were also under consideration. Uh, the first one really that had a clinical trial was the Amplatzer device, which was the old device used by uh, Amplatz Medical to close PFOs and ASDs and it was used to close off these left atrial appendages as well. Those were in the mid, early and mid 2000s, and then that progressed after Abbott Medical purchased, um, purchased the Amplatzer company uh, into the Amulet device, and that Amulet trial uh, concluded about a year and a half ago. Um, it enrolled uh, thousands of patients throughout the United States that had a elevated CHADS2 VASC score. That's the scoring system we use to determine how risky you are at developing a stroke due to atrial fibrillation. And that device is basically a ball and uh, disc device. The ball is used to lodge itself into the appendage and the disc then covers the appendage surface in order to create that seal. The nice thing about this device is that with that ball design, it's a very uh, gentle device to implant. It's very safe to implant into the more challenging anatomy of the left atrial appendage. Um, and that uh, clinical trial was done uh, as dual antiplatelet therapy only after implantation did not require patients to take oral anticoagulation. Um, and so that device is currently under FDA uh, review. We're waiting for final uh, approval, which I think should be available by uh, the middle to end of 2021. Interesting. It's got also the pacifier, uh, really exactly. kind of interesting yes. <laughs> from the, the point of view of its structure. 85% of these patients had contraindication to anticoagulation. So I think very relevant to what we're talking today. And, and as you mentioned, um, almost half of them you know, had dual antiplatelet and no anticoagulation whatsoever. 30% or a third had single antiplatelet, you know, whether it was Plavix or, or Clopidogrel or, or aspirin. Very interesting. Now let's really um, you know, move to Europe and, and look at the experience because in Europe, um, there's an indication for closure device in patients that have contraindication to anticoagulation. And, and we have to look at the uh, registry. I mean, it's the best that we can get at this point. 
but it's called uh, evolution. And uh, the real life use of Watchman device where 70, over 70% 70 of patients had contraindication to oral anticoagulation. So what's the experience there in Europe, uh, Yoav, and, and uh, in, in those high-risk patients, very high-risk? Absolutely. So uh, for just a little context for our listeners, the original Watchman device was uh, first trialed in 2005 in the PROTECT trial, and then again in the late 2000s in the PREVAIL trial that ended in 2012. Um, and the FDA and those two trials, along with two registries, provided for FDA approval of the Watchman device, but only in patients that could qualify for oral anticoagulation, namely Coumadin or warfarin, for six weeks after implantation. Um, and so, in the United States, we have no guideline-directed indication for implanting the Watchman device on no anticoagulation postoperatively. However, in Europe, as you rightly pointed out. Um, they're taking a little bit more of a realistic approach to the way that patients are uh, treated. And there is an indication for dual antiplatelet therapy as a 2B indication uh, in patients who, uh, who undergo Watchman implantation. That evolution trial that you uh, referred to, um, again, you pointed out as a registry trial, but in the lack of other trials or other data, that's as good as we have included about 1,000 patients. It was 1,020 patients. Um, the average CHADS-VASC score was significantly higher than the majority of trials in the United States. It was almost five. Um, and those patients uh, had, 72% of them had absolute contraindications to oral anticoagulation, as we discussed previously. Um, out of those patients, post-implantation out of those 1,020 patients, only 27% of them uh, were discharged on an anticoagulant. Another 60% were discharged on dual antiplatelet therapy, and the remainder were actually discharged on only single antiplatelet therapy or nothing at all. That data was uh, reviewed at one year, and actually what we saw was a similar uh, outcome as all the trials done in the United States that included vitamin K antagonists such as warfarin. Um, when we are implanting on no anticoagulants, the concern is not that we are going to have an ischemic stroke due to atrial fibrillation or incomplete closure. The concern is that we would provide anitis for thrombus on the face of the device itself because it's a foreign body. And so what we'd actually want to look at is what's called DRT or device-related thrombus. In all of the trials in the United States that we referenced before, Prevail, Protect, and the registries, the rate of DRT was about 3.8% all comers. And that was despite aggressive anticoagulation for six weeks after implantation. In the evolution trial in Europe that again, as we referenced uh, over 70% of those patients left on no anticoagulant of any kind, um, the same rate of DRT was noted, it was at 4%. And so uh, frankly, this data is suggestive of the fact that DRT is independent of what type of anticoagulant we're using. And so, frankly, I think we have to start looking more um, aggressively at treating patients with absolute contraindications here in the United States. Results were very good. I mean, uh, at two years, 85% um, of these patients were just on aspirin. Stroke rate was low, you know, about 1.3%, you know, had, uh, you know, stroke, TIA, or, or systemic embolic embolization, um, around 80% uh, 
you know, uh, fewer events than expected. And obviously we, we understand it's a registry, so it's not like a perfect trial. Um, not everybody had, you know, um, TEs post-op and follow-up. There's no um, checking on the data. The, the, it's, it's really, you know, a real life experience. But overall, I think it gives us a feel that, you know, this is really a real contender. Uh, and maybe we should be, you know, uh, doing that kind of atrial closure device in patients that have contraindication. Certainly, it looks very promising. So yeah, there's a lot of development in these closure devices you have. Um, you know, the, the, there's now the Watchman Flex, um, even uh, the Implantser or Amulet is, is getting, you know, transformation. We're trying to uh, change the design so not only they're easier to place or, or, or easier to, to uh, close the appendage, but also a different design that maybe can decrease the, the leaks that we have and maybe decrease those DRTs or these you know, device-related thrombi. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Maybe some of the new device, new design that are coming out and, and you know, how, how maybe this will propel us, you know, going forward, you know, without maybe too much risk of thromboembolic event after this device without the use of anticoagulation. Yeah, so the Watchman Flex device, which is the new device, it, it was FDA approved in July of last year, um, and is a significant, in my opinion, a significant improvement over the original Watchman device, not only from a safety of implantation standpoint, but also I think that we're going to find that it's a much safer device from a DRT standpoint. The reasoning behind that is it inc uh, includes a significantly increased layer of uh, fabric cap that goes a little bit further down the uh, metal struts of the device, the nitinol struts of the device. That provides a lower profile for the device and also provides less nitinol in contact with the bloodstream. Additionally, it has uh, significantly more tines to hold the device in place, but those tines are not as sharp and don't cause as much tissue breakdown at the site, which I think may be an independent predictor of DRT as well. So from those two standpoints alone, um, I think you're gonna find that this is gonna be a safer device from a DRT standpoint. But on top of that, it's also much like the Amplatzer or Amulet device has a closed back end, whereas the original Watchman device was much uh, more open at the back end. This decreases risk from two perspectives. Number one, that provides less compression needed in the appendage itself which again, less compression, I think, puts less tension or pressure on the tissue, which may be a predictor of DRT. And number two provides for a much better seal around the device. And therefore you'll find less flow and less overall reason for DRT to form. Well, that's great. So, you know, I think we're about to um, get onto um, prospective uh, randomized uh, trial, you know, looking at these new device um, one of them, you know, is um, ASAP or ASAP2. You were actually part of the uh, ASAP, you know, clinical trial, uh, which used aspirin and Plavix, you know, in a small number of patients, but still very low risk of stroke and, and uh, really um, a lot of um, significant reduction uh, compared just to aspirin alone. Can you tell us a little bit about the SAP2 and how do you think it's going to impact our clinical practice? Well, 
I would love to be able to tell you that we're going to be getting results of that shortly, but unfortunately, that's proven to be a very challenging trial to enroll in. Uh, as you mentioned, I was a member of that trial and actually was the highest enroller the last two years in that trial. Um, but to put that into context, uh, we're looking for a total of 888 patients in that trial. I was the highest enroller in the United States last year, and I enrolled six patients. So as you can imagine, uh, getting patients enrolled is a challenge. A lot of that is because uh, practitioners are reluctant to um, not provide the service for the patient. The uh, ASAP2 trial is set up as a two-to-one randomization where patients with absolute contraindications to oral anticoagulation are randomized two patients to a Watchman device. That's the first-generation Watchman device versus one patient that'll remain on whatever therapy they came in on uh, prior to the procedure aspirin, Plavix, or nothing. And the patients who receive a Watchman device will be discharged on only dual antiplatelet therapy for three months. We're trying to show that there is clear safety and efficacy of that device in, in the setting of dual antiplatelet therapy alone. But based on the evolution trial that we discussed previously, a lot of practitioners are choosing to implant off-label rather than risking a patient not getting a Watchman device at all. And so it is uh, challenging to find patients in that trial. There's another trial also, which is really uh, pretty incredible. And the stroke close device that is going on in Europe, I think in the Netherlands, uh, enrolling patients that have had uh, previous intracranial bleed. Yes. So we're looking at patients with uh, uh, prior intracranial bleed who would be considered at the highest rate of contraindication on patients and they are being uh, implanted uh, with uh, left atrial appendage occlusion devices and uh, compared to those patients with, uh, with, with nothing at all. This is using the amulet, uh, the amulet device rather than the um, Watchman device. The amulet device is already, um, is already approved in Europe, um, but the control group, the patients that are not getting implanted uh, will receive whatever therapy uh, they choose at the physician's discretion. And that could be anything from oral anticoagulation to novel oral anticoagulants, such as uh, Eliquis or Xarelto or antiplatelet therapy only. And so we'll have to see how that plays out, but it sounds very similar to the evolution uh, trial, but using amulet rather than just uh, watch. Uh, very good. So it should be really kind of interesting, but it looks to me that the, um, Atrial closure device, you know, whether you use Amulet or, or Watchman or Watchman Flex, you know, is really a viable option for these patients that have contraindication to anticoagulation. Now, uh, you are, you're an electrophysiologist, and uh, and there is this this very interesting trial, you know, going on a option, you know, trial in patients that have atrial fibrillation, and uh, where you know you you were studying you know, whether these patients should have concomitant atrial closure device procedure or it may be done immediately after. I mean, what an interesting concept. I mean, you're going there for an affibulation, you may be at risk for, you know, a bleed um, as well. You're at risk for a stroke. Why not put a um, atrial closure device at that time or, or closer? I mean, doesn't that seem logical uh, for our patients? Well, you're unfortunately um, 
attempting to provide logic when it comes to insurance companies. And that's something that is a challenge from the day that insurance was born. But right now, the problem is that insurance companies will only provide fee for service for one procedure at a time. And since these are both expensive procedures, it would be uh, too cost prohibitive for uh, hospitals to be able to afford to do both at the same time. This study is groundbreaking in that not only is it going to hopefully show that patients have uh, lower risk of complications when we do both at the same time, and it makes sense just because we're going to provide one less transeptal puncture, one less uh, form of general anesthesia. But number two, it's comparing these uh, Watchman Flex patients to on, uh, and they're using novel oral anticoagulants rather than uh, warfarin, which had not been done previously. And so we'll be able to get some data to justify the use of these novel oral anticoagulants as well. Very interesting. I guess, I guess in here in the United States, it probably could be a stage procedure. I know that, um, you know, for convenience sake, it wouldn't make sense to be, you know, at the same time. But as you mentioned, not very realistic in, in the world that we're living in, at least in the United States, maybe in Europe, you know, it's something like that, you know, can be done. Anything else going on in that field of atrial closure device uh, you have and, and as an electrophysiologist, where, where do you see us going? Well, the uh, fascinating news is that last year, Watchman being the only FDA approved device, so Watchman's the only one that's listed right now, um, actually got an indication for closure in, uh, in the HRS guidelines, which is something that uh, usually takes a lot longer than it did for this uh, device. It's currently listed as a 2B indication, which is the lowest of the scientific recommendations. But I think that over the next five to 10 years, you're gonna find that uh, um, Watchman closure or left atrial appendage closure of whatever kind is gonna overtake anticoagulants as a first line therapy. Uh, the reasoning is that when you look at the uh, stack data of the four Watchman trials, the two randomized trials, the two registry trials. At five years, we see a mortality benefit in patients who have a left atrial appendage occlusion rather than uh, staying on oral anticoagulation. And if you can find something that has a mortality benefit at five years, you're going to start seeing this become a first-line therapy, especially in younger patients, which right now are not the ones we're trying to target, but especially in younger patients as you try to provide longer lifespans. Very interesting. So there's currently probably around five to six million uh, U.S. patients with AFib, project to be about 15 or 16 million in the last 30 years. You're not going to run out of a, of a job, uh, your wife. I mean, it seems like you're going to get busier. <laughs> I don't think that uh, electrophysiologists will ever be uh, trying to get through on food stamps. We're going to do just fine. <laughs> and help a lot of our patients uh, in the process. You have Kreutheimer and everything you want to know about the atrial closure device and patients that can't take blood thinners. Thank you very much, you have. Appreciate for your time. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.